Welcome back to 90 Days New. Today is December 12th, and we are getting very close to completing our New Testament reading plan. Today we are in 1 John, and so we'll spend a couple of days in this book. It is written by the disciple John, the same one who wrote the gospel that we just finished reading. And uh, you may see some similarity of language as you go through John's writings, uh, not only in the Gospel and 1 John, but then in 2 John, 3 John, and also in the book of Revelation that John also wrote. Um, one of the things we're going to look at today is his outlook on being born again. Uh, we saw language in John chapter 3 where Jesus told Nicodemus that you must be born again, and now that becomes a major focal point of the book of 1 John. But before we go and look through the various passages that speak of being born again, I want to first talk about one of the reasons that John was writing. And I think I alluded to this in a previous episode, but John is very emphatic that Jesus came as a real person. John was combating um, an early version of what would later become a full-blown um, viewpoint called Gnosticism. And in Gnosticism, the belief was that Jesus could not have been really human because only the spirit world was pure and good. And since being a human would mean being inferior to the spirit, then there's no way that Jesus could be equal with God. And so they bought into what was called docetism. Docetism is a denial of Jesus's humanity, that he only appeared to be a physical human being, but actually he was just a spirit being that manifested himself as a human. Um, but listen to what John says in 1 John verse 1. Uh, he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And he goes on uh, to say more, but I want to just emphasize that John is bringing attention to our senses, the senses that we use with the material world. He's talking about our vision. He's talking about our hearing. He brings up the sense of touch here as the disciples who lived with Jesus had interaction with him on various levels. They heard him Physically speaking, they saw his, his lips physically moving. They would embrace him in a hug. I mean, Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus with a kiss on his cheek. This was not a spiritual hologram being projected into the material world to sort of fake us out, make us think that he was a literal human being, uh, but rather this was a real human in human flesh. This is so critical for John's theology that he goes on to write in 1 John 4, 2, By this you know, the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. You see, he was drawing a line in the sand, separating those who believed that Jesus came in the flesh from those who did not come in the flesh. And so those early proto-Gnostics who did not acknowledge Jesus as coming as a real human, 
he was saying that they were not a part of the family of God. They were not born again. They did not have the Holy Spirit inside of them. That denial of Jesus' humanity was evidence against their spiritual position. And so this is a reminder to us today that while we don't have to know everything about the Bible, there are certain biblical truths that are absolutely necessary for being a follower of Christ. We have to uphold his humanity. I would say as uh, equivalent to that, we would have to uphold his deity. We have to understand that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. To deny either one of those would put us in the same camp as these proto-Gnostics, um, because you are denying a, a central necessary component of what salvation is. Only God could come and could withstand sin. Only God could show up and not fall prey to the temptations that exist on uh, planet Earth. Um, only God could be an eternal sacrifice that could be an ongoing provision for our sin. But at the same time, only a human could pay for human sin. God can't come and pay for human sin because we're the ones who committed the, the trespass. And so it took a fully God, fully man sacrifice in order to do what Jesus did for us. And to deny either Jesus' deity or humanity misses the entire point of the gospel message. And so with that in mind, we want to turn our attention now to John's theme of being born again. I think this is crucial, and I think before we even look at the passages that talk about being born again, we should look at the purpose of John's writing here in 1 John 5.13. At the end of the book, he says, These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. See, John wants to give assurance and evidence to believers that they have eternal life. And so one of the evidences that he gives is that those of us who are flesh— we are living in the flesh. We're here on planet Earth. We're a part of the material world. We, too, have a, a divine connection through the Holy Spirit, whereas an, a Gnostic would think that those two were incompatible. But John is once again saying, just like Jesus was completely God and became flesh, you who are completely flesh can be united to God and can have eternal life. And to, to be in his presence. And you don't have to destroy this body in order to be right and have communion with God. And so 1 John 2.29 tells us a little bit. It says, if you know that he is righteous, speaking of Christ, uh, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. And so if we follow the works of God, if we, if we do the righteousness that Christ did and we mimic his works in our life, then it is evidence that we have been born of him. 1 John 3, 9 says, No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now, I know this uh, verse has tripped up several because it says that he cannot sin, and so is this saying that those who are absolutely 100% perfect are the ones who are born of God? Uh, well, it also says in 1 John that if anyone says that he has no sin, he makes God to be a liar. And so there are two truths here that we have to reconcile. One is that all people are sinners, and two, those who are Christians, who are born again, 
do not sin or cannot sin. And I think when we look at Scripture as a whole, what we find out is that those who are born again do not willfully sin. We do not want to sin. We do not want to remain in our sin. We do not want to habitually sin and to continue on in a lifestyle of sin as if it's no big deal. Whereas those who are not born again, they can go on and on and on and be proud of their sin and love their sin and continue to live day in and day out in sin without any regret or any feeling of remorse. But those who are born again, those who are born of God, because they have God's seed in them, they have the Holy Spirit living in them, it fights back against sinful practices, and a a Christian cannot be happy and satisfied in that state, and so they will repent and turn from it. Um, maybe, Maybe it takes a little longer with one Christian than another Christian, but they are not satisfied and happy in their sin. So that is evidence that you are a believer. If you have great remorse and regret and guilt uh, over sinful living that is not repented, and um, that Holy Spirit inside of you is speaking and and affirming that you are indeed a child of God. 1 John 4, 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Everyone loves who is born of God, or everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So our love for our brother, our love for other people is evidence that we are born of God. If you do not love other people, then we might say as an equal truth that that's evidence that you are not born of God. You can't love God and hate people. In fact, 1 John makes that very clear. He says, if you say you love God, but you don't love people, once again, you're making God out to be a liar here because loving God and loving people go together. When Jesus answered the question, what is the greatest commandment? It was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Those two go together. You can't love God and hate people, and you can't hate God and love people. There are some who express that they are very loving towards people, but they have no interest in God. And I would say, well, you can't truly love people if you don't love God. First um, John 5, 1 says that whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. And so you have been born of God if you believe that Jesus is the Christ. You want to know if you've been born of God? Well, check your beliefs. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Well, that is another evidence that you have indeed been born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. So you are in love with Christ because you've been born of the Father. 1 John 5, 4 says, For for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. So a reminder that our faith, is an evidence that we indeed have been born of God. And that language of overcoming the world will show up again in the book of Revelation. So keep that in mind as you uh, begin to walk through John's final writing. Uh, but then the last verse here, 1 John five eighteen says, We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he 
who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. So this is very similar to 1 John 3, 9, um, but we have evidence, once again, if we are not in love with sin, if in fact we practice self-denial, we take up our own cross, we try to put sinfulness uh, to death in our body and try to live for Christ, then that's evidence that we indeed are born of God. Now, I will bring out one more thing with each of these passages. If I were to ask you, what came first, being born of God or putting away your sin? You would think, well, of course, being born of God first. You can't put away your sin until you're born of God. You've got to have the Holy Spirit inside of you to even combat sin. So being born of God came first. What came first, being born of God or overcoming the world? Well, of course, being born of God. You can't overcome the world until you've been born of God. Um, and then you could ask this question with each of these passages that we went through. Um, loving other people. What came first? Loving other people or being born of God? Well, you couldn't love other people properly until you were born from God, until you're born of God. Which came first? Practicing righteousness or being born of God? Well, being born of God came first. So each one of these, the born of God is the foundation, and then the reaction to being born of God is the evidence that you have been born of God. And I bring all this up because there's one passage here that if you apply that same logic to, it kind of creates uh, a theological proof for a, a soteriological position, which that is the word that means the study of salvation. But it says this here in 1 John 5, 1. We already read it, but I'll read it one more time. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Now, which came first? Like I said, if you apply that same logic to this passage, then it would indicate that being born of God precedes believing that Jesus is the Christ. Believing that Jesus is the Christ is actually the evidence that you have been born of God. And this is one of the reasons that I am of a reformed believer. Reformed theology teaches that God's saving grace is what enables us to begin with, to even believe that Jesus is the Christ. Prior to us believing, we didn't believe, and there's nothing on earth that would cause us to believe. In fact, our minds are set against God, but God comes in in his mercy and grace, and he enables us. He initiates salvation. He's the author and finisher of our faith, and he creates in us a, a, a belief and a faith that we could never come up with on our own. And then when we believe in Jesus Christ, we can look back and say, I, I believe because I have been born of God. The last thing I'll mention before we get off for the day is that this book ends with almost what appears to be an afterthought tagged on to the conclusion of the book. While John has not really mentioned idolatry in the proper sense of the word, there hasn't been any discussion of, of gods made with hands or statues that people are worshiping or anything like that. At the very end of the book, he writes, little children, keep yourselves from idols. 
Now, while there has not been any mention of idolatry, I think everything that we've talked about in this combating Gnosticism and these worldviews that reject Jesus as coming as God and man, I think all of those are a form of idolatry. They're philosophical idolatry. Uh, they're intellectual idolatry, not necessarily the idolatry of physical worship, but anything that stands as an antagonistic viewpoint to the Christian gospel must be rejected by believers. Otherwise, we have bowed our knee to something other than God and his truth. And so we keep that in mind as we study the scripture that we allow God to speak and to have the, the preeminent voice, knowing that he and he alone is the source of absolute truth. We'll conclude here for today, and we will pick this up next time on 90 Days New.